We look at Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. We begin with the last phrase of chapter of verse 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, just at the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me and I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except for the one which I rode. I went out by night in the valley. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up to the, by night to, by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back, and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, to, and they said Let us arise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You would think that by this time there wouldn't be any museums open anymore. I mean, if you think about it, any picture, famous picture in the world that you ever would want to see, you can just Google it up and see it right there on your computer screen. And in fact, there's probably a button right there that you can not only see the picture, this great masterpiece, this great piece of art, this favorite piece of artwork that you want to see, not only can you see it right there on your computer screen, but you can probably click a button and buy a poster for your, your entryway in your house. And really, it's possible that you can even buy a t-shirt that's got your picture on it. It would seem like the idea of having to actually go someplace to see this picture is just, why would anybody do that anymore? Uh, but the reality is, there is something profound about standing in front of the original. Uh, there is something profound about standing almost the same distance that the artist who painted it stood that you are standing in that moment. There is something profound in being able to stand so close to that piece of artwork that you can see the texture, 
that's there on the canvas. You can see the brush strokes that there on the campus canvas. You can see that this is a three-dimensional image. This is not just a flat picture anymore. And you begin to take a look at each part of that picture. And the truth is that if you kind of stare at one section of the picture and you kind of get mesmerized by the texture and the brush strokes, if you just kind of stop and look at this one little section, you're like, well, I could have done that. That's not so beautiful. That's not so breathtaking. It's just a bunch of mixes and colors and things like that. And then we have to step back again and see the large picture. But there is something about being right there in front of it where you can see the texture and the brush strokes and it becomes a three-dimensional, almost alive place. For the last two weeks, we've been talking about life beyond the rubble. We have been talking about how God comes and he rescues his people. But we have looked at Ezra chapter 1 where God turns and moves in the heart of Cyrus the king and says that there's an emancipation proclamation that the people who have been in captivity have been set free. And he gives them permission to raise funds to go back and build the temple again. And he actually empties the storeroom of all the stolen material that they had taken from that temple in Jerusalem. And he returns it to them. And it is a pro- profound moment. And we looked last week at how God stirs in the heart of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, this is what I need to do to go and restore the walls of the city of Jerusalem so that there can be an identity to that place, so there can be safety in that place. And Nehemiah reveals to us that he is the cupbearer of the king, which means he is a highly trusted person. And God stirs in Nehemiah's heart. He stirs in the heart of the king. And Nehemiah is sent home to Jerusalem so that he can rebuild. And in these two great pictures, we see these turning point moments. We see history turn on a dime. We see miracles happen as God restores his people from the rubble. But it's also possible that after two weeks of hearing about life beyond the rubble, that you may be here this morning and say, where's my miracle? I'm still stuck in in the rubble. I'm still choking on the the dust. I'm still surrounded by the ashes. I haven't felt anything get better yet at all. In fact, to be honest with you, in the last two weeks, things have gotten worse in my life than they've gotten better. How is that happening? Where is my miracle? Well, I've got good news for you this morning. I've got great news for you, news that I can't wait to tell you this morning, and that good news is that there is life beyond the rubble because God is not finished. There is life beyond the rubble because God is not finished. Even if it feels like, well, wait a minute, how how has this not turned for me yet? Why has this not happened for me yet? I want you to know that God is not finished. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as our congregation gathers here in person and online, and as we think through the different parts of our life that are strong and firm, and we think through the different parts of our life that are wounded, and sometimes, Lord, it's rubble. And Lord, there are people who are listening to this message right now and have been listening to this series of messages Man, they're still stuck in that rubble. And they want to know where you are. Because the rubble is still here. 
So Lord, I pray that you would speak truth to our lives today. Lord, I pray that you'd soften our hearts and our minds and our spirits so that we can hear it. We pray this in your name. Amen. What happens here in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that we have this opportunity to step into the story. I think in Ezra chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 1, we, we get these big pictures. They're awesome. They're fantastic. They're great. But I think that it's when we move here into Nehemiah chapter 2 that we begin to see the brushstrokes. We begin to see the texture of the page. We begin to understand that the working, the movement of God sometimes is a slow, painful and gradual experience that sometimes feels like we're taking more steps backwards than we are taking steps forward. But I want you to know that there is life beyond the rubble because God is not finished. So let's see what Nehemiah experiences here in Nehemiah chapter 2, and let's see how that impacts our lives together. Now the first thing that, that I want you to know as we look at this passage is I want you to know that life beyond the rubble takes more humility than you think. Life beyond the rubble takes more humility than, than you think. Now, now, here's part of the thing. Sometimes we have this really awkward relationship with humility. We're trying to figure out what is humility. And sometimes we get this sense of humility just being a false modesty. Uh, the choir sings well, and we tell the choir, you did a great job. No, 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 we didn't. We, 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 we didn't do that great. That, that, that's a false modesty. That's not the same thing as a humility. So sometimes we, we get the idea of humility is a false modesty. Sometimes we get the idea that, that humility is just the absence of arrogant pride. Uh, and so we're trying to do that. Sometimes we're like, you know what, I need to find some place between this false modesty and between arrogant pride. And maybe the middle in between there someplace is humility. I, I think that humility is simply living under truth. It's just living under what is truth. It is living under truth, and it is living under the largest truths. It's not just about us. There are bigger things that are in play. And so it is not false modesty. It is certainly avoiding pride and arrogance, but it is simply living under truth. And what Nehemiah has to do, if he's going to be used by God to restore the rubble and to rebuild the walls of this city, this great task that he has been assigned and called to do, is he's going to have to deal with some humility and live under truth. Now, he has this vision that's inside of his heart. It's large and it's big. It's a great vision of a day that the rubble does not exist and instead these strong, firm walls in the city can gleam once again. But for Nehemiah, the journey is going to have to start in a small place. It's going to have to start small because what we see here is that God put this into Nehemiah's heart. In fact, he said, I didn't tell anybody what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, now, why didn't he tell anybody? Because it needed to set inside of Nehemiah a little bit longer before it went public. It wasn't time for everybody else to know. God was going to do a large, big thing in Nehemiah's life and in that city and amongst all of those people. But before it was large, it had to be small. And before it was dramatic, it had to be deep. 
And so for Nehemiah, he had this thing that's been in his heart from the time that Hananiah, his brother, had talked to him, from the time that he talked to the king, from the time that he gathered all of his supplies, from the time that he marched across uh, the, the desert to get to Jerusalem, from the time that he walked into the city of Jerusalem, it is deepening inside of him. And he's not telling anybody else about him, about it because it has to begin in a small, deep place. I want you to know there's some things that God wants to do inside of your life that they are going to start small and stay small for some time because they have to germinate inside of your soul. And it's not time for other people to see it, other people to hear about it, other people to know about it because God is putting it inside of you. Nehemiah also learns in this place <laughs> that down and dirty beats high and mighty. Down and dirty beats high and mighty. He has been in the city for three days. Now, Nehemiah is a big deal. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. We talked last week about the fact that cupbearer of the king was not just the guy that handled the silverware. Nehemiah was the person the king trusted even more than his closest uh, advisors, probably even more than his own family because he trusted Nehemiah with his life. And probably the reason why Nehemiah has been sent to Jerusalem is because the king wants someone that he can trust as governor there in Jerusalem. And we see the degree in which the trust he has. He has these letters. Remember, he gets the credit card of the king. And for the escort to go back across the desert to Jerusalem, he sends these soldiers. He sends these officers and horsemen. So Nehemiah shows up with this entourage of the king's authority. But when he arrives... He keeps everything on the quiet. He spends three days in the city, and then one night with just a handful of people, with one animal. I think it's interesting, the idea of this one animal. I think what it says is Nehemiah could have shown up with a whole entourage. He could have been like we would come today and show up with seven black SUVs. And, you know, we see one of those motorcades come through. You're like, ooh, somebody really important must be here. And Nehemiah drove through town in, in, in one little Camry. Uh, nobody needed to know or see what he was doing. One little animal that he took and a few people. And without telling anybody, he walks through and he sees the rubble for himself. Now, he could have played the cards and said, I'm here on behalf of the king. The king trusts me more than he trusts anybody else. Did you see the entourage that I came with? Do you see the letters that I have? Do you see all of these things? God has put this on my heart to do this great thing. No, he starts by quietly picking through the rubble without drawing a ton of attention to himself. Just gets into it and does the work. You and I sometimes, we, we, we would like to make a big deal of the things that God is doing inside of us. But really what we need to do sometimes is just quietly get in and do the down and the dirty and, and just get our hands in the middle of it and do it. But probably as much as anything else in terms of Nehemiah's humility is that he needed to see the truth about the situation. And so what he does in that little trip that he takes in the middle of the night with just a handful of people and one animal, and, and he walks that city. 
And he lists off this gate and this gate and this gate and all the main entry points and exit points of the city that all would have had these great gates that provided security and identity for the city. And he walks through there and all he sees is rubble. All he sees is destruction. All he sees is what is a mess. And there is a very real possibility if Nehemiah is flesh and blood, which he is, that Nehemiah walks through that and says, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? I I lived in the palace. I I had one of the best jobs that there was. I have to come and and tell these people that this is what we're going to do, and it's the biggest mess that I've ever seen in my life. But before Nehemiah could talk to anybody else, before Nehemiah could make a plan, before Nehemiah could dream anymore, he had to see the reality of the situation. Now listen, When we come into these series of messages, the expectation is that we can identify inside of ourselves some parts of our life that are broken, some parts of our life that are wounded, some parts of our life that are struggling, some parts of our life that are rubble. Now, the balance that we have to find here is that we can quickly identify and say, oh, yeah, that's not good. That part of life isn't great. Oh, I'm struggling there. But sometimes the real challenge for us is that we've got to really unpack that. And we've got to really see how tough the situation is and how broken the situation is. And sometimes that does break through our sense of pride. And so maybe... Maybe there's an addiction in your life that you're like, well, it's, I mean, it's not good, but it's not terrible. I've known people that have got that worse. But maybe you need to just put that on the table and be honest about how messed, that up, messed up that is. Maybe there's some struggles in marriage right now that, again, you're like, well, you know, we've had better days, and yeah, it's kind of tough, but I'm sure we're going to be fine. When you, when you need to put that on the table and see it for what it is. Maybe there's some spiritual drift that's in your life where you're, you're just not heading the same direction that you were before, and maybe the temptation is to say, yeah, it's no big deal. I'll get it straight next week. Maybe there's some things out of balance in terms of your priorities or out of balance in terms of the routines and pattern of your life. Man, maybe, maybe you're separated from God. Maybe you don't have a personal relationship with God. Maybe you're dealing with some prejudice. Maybe you're dealing with some anger or some bitterness or some forgiveness. And there's a part of us that wants to say, yeah, it's not good, but, but, but it's not that big a deal. What Nehemiah had to do is he had to kind of go and he had to go down to the roots and he had to go down to the base of that wall and he had to look at the foundations and say, oh, this is really, really not good. And before the rebuilding can happen, we have to have a clear, honest picture of what is broken in life. So I don't want us to hang here too long. But I do challenge you that before you can rebuild, you have to have an honest picture of what is broken 
and how far from where you're supposed to be you are. Nehemiah had to do that. I bet it was really, really hard to see the amount of work that was in front of him, but he could not move forward until he honestly dealt with the brokenness. Life beyond the rubble is going to take more humility than we want it to. I'll also tell you that life beyond the rubble is going to face more opposition than you expect. Life beyond the rubble is going to face more opposition than you would expect. And this, this doesn't seem fair. There's a part of it that we still have to deal with the internal struggles of our rubble and try to figure out what is broken and what broke it and how broken is it. And those are internal wrestlings that we have to do. And while at the same time that we're doing these internal wrestlings, Sometimes we have to face critics in our life that want us to tell us that this vision that God has given us of repair for our lives isn't possible or isn't needed or isn't a big deal or isn't right. And voices speak into this. It is amazing to me as we take a look at verses 8 through 10 here in chapter 2. Eight, chapter 8, the king gave me everything that I asked for because the hand of God was upon me. And I traveled across the desert. And I had these letters. And I had this escort. And I got to the city of Jerusalem. And Sanballat and Tobiah began to criticize from the moment he steps his little toe into the city, opponents arise almost instantaneously. Did you notice the motivation that Sanballat and Tobiah had? They were disturbed that somebody had come for the welfare of the city. Now think about that. They were upset that somebody came to do something good for the city that was in their midst. Now, one part of me said, I don't understand that at all. How could somebody go out of their way to be upset because something good was going to happen to somebody else? That doesn't even make sense. How can that happen? <laughs> and then I realized it happens around us all the time. Man, I can't explain that level of brokenness. That when something good could happen, is about to happen, is happening in somebody else's life, that that draws criticism? I don't get that at all. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you experienced that at all in your life? When God is doing something good inside of your life, that it just draws criticism to you. That is a real life experience. Now, there's a quick time out here. That is true. It happens in other people's lives. But the quick time out is, man, you and I better expect our own lives to make sure that we're not ever the person who does that, that sees something good happening in someone else's life. And from whatever point of darkness that still has got a spot in our heart that just bursts up and bubbles up criticism and attack on the blessings that someone else may be experiencing. I don't understand it. But it happens out there, and I'm afraid every once in a while it probably happens in here as well. Opposition 
is going to come. Opposition is going to show up. Notice what they do is what they do is that they, they come and they offend, they are offended by good things, and their attack is a couple of things. One, they make fun of them. It says they mock them. They bring mockery to them. We're going to see, I think it's next week's message, we're going to see some of the details of how they mock them. But I want you to know that the people of Jerusalem were an insecure people about the wall. They had been living with that broken wall for a couple of generations. They knew that they could not be a whole city as long as that wall was broken. They probably had had meetings about repairing that wall. They probably talked about repairing that wall. It had probably been years that they had dealt with somebody ought to do something about that. And something about that insecurity just grew and grew. And so when Sanballat and Tobiah begin to criticize, they're not just randomly criticizing. But they are hitting vulnerable points. They have an insecurity about the wall, and Sanballat and Tobiah mock them. The criticism knows where to land. Isn't that true? Criticism knows where to land inside of our hearts. And it knows how to hit that Achilles heel in our own lives. Also inside of this, Sanballat and Tobiah have a, have a little threat that they have in here. They said, you're not rebelling against the king, are you? Now, these are people who have official positions in the area. In Ezra's time, the rebuilding of the temple was stalled for 20 years because people like Sanballat and Tobiah wrote letters to the king and said, they're rebelling against you. And bureaucratic paperwork stopped the rebuilding of the temple for 20 years. So this criticism is not just empty. It is both vicious in terms of it attacking the weak points of their life, but it also can be strategic and a very real threat because a generation earlier, it had stopped the entire project with people just like this. Notice how Nehemiah responds. First thing Nehemiah does is Nehemiah ignores you see this in verse 10, Sanballat and Tobiah, da, 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 da. Nehemiah gets up and inspects the wall. He ain't listening. He ain't bothering with all that stuff. He's got work to do. And so sometimes when we face opposition, you know the best response to opposition is go to work. Ignore it. Go do the things that you're supposed to do. Get to it. But I also want you to notice that the opposition continues, and it will continue. In fact, as we move further into the chapter, we see actually the, op the opposition grows. It started with two opponents, and now it's three opponents, and it's starting to grow. And there's this attack, and there is this seed that says you're rebelling against the king, which is a very, very significant charge. And so what I love here in this passage, that to begin with, Nehemiah ignores it and goes to work. And then secondly, Nehemiah ignites and confronts the untruth. Take a look at this in verse 20. Verse 19, it says, And Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Verse 20, you ready? That I replied to them. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no 
portion in this thing or right or claim in Jerusalem. Listen, it is untrue what you are saying. I've got paperwork from the king. More than that, my God is going to get this done. And it's none of your business. Now that's hard. But I'm going to tell you that sometimes there is criticism that comes up against you. And you got to say, that's not true. And you got to just put it on the line and silence it. And speak firmly. And when there is a lie that comes against you, you say, that is not true. And in many cases, not only is it not true, it is none of your business. And we stand firm in those places. Now, I'll tell you that there's one other hard piece about the criticism. Sometimes that criticism isn't always out there. Sometimes that criticism is here in our own heart, in our own mind. And sometimes it's a voice that's whispering in our own ear. Sometimes it's a voice of darkness that is telling us, it's not true, it can't be done, you'll never be worth it, you'll not be able to do this. And those are some of the lies that you have to squish and say, that is not true. Man, we got to face that criticism sometimes. We have to face lies We ignore it and get the work done, but we also don't let persistent untruth and opposition put down roots in our lives and in our hearts and in our ears. Life beyond the rubble sometimes faces more opposition than we expect, but I would also tell you that life beyond the rubble demands more commitment than we are used to. Nehemiah calls the people to do the work he hasn't told anyone before the tour of the wall what he was going to do. He hasn't told the officials. He hasn't told the priests. He hasn't told anyone. He hasn't told the people who are going to do the work. But after he sees the situation, he gathers the people together. And what he says is, it's bad. It's a point of derision or shame in our lives. So let's do it. I love what he says here. What he says is that the difficulty does not intimidate us, but it motivates us. He says, listen, we're, we're going to be dealing with this shame. We're going to be dealing with this derision. We're going to deal with the brokenness of this wall until we fix it. So let's go fix it. Let's go do it. And in the middle of it, Nehemiah says, let me tell you a story, too, of what God has been doing inside of my life. And what you need to know is that the good hand of God is upon this project. This is what the king has done. This is what I've come to do. And the people said, let us arise and build. And they strengthened their hand to do the work. They rolled up their sleeves they gathered whatever pieces of a toolbox that they could pull together. And they said, let's do this thing. It's going to have to be more than words. 
It's going to have to be more than talk. But they have rolled up their sleeves and they said, let's get to it. So as we think about the now what in terms of this passage of Scripture, here are some questions that I want you to think about this morning. I want you to think about what's your wall? What's the point of your life, the part of your life that is broken in disrepair and maybe even be a point of shame inside of your life? Now, it's no fun to talk about, let me list all of my shames. But what is that part of life? Addiction, marriage, spiritual distance, separation from God, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, prejudice, whatever it may be. Well, what is that thing that needs to be repaired inside of your life? Uh, secondly, secondly, what, is, what are some lies that you need to confront some voices that have been telling you it's not really a problem or it's not possible to fix or you can't do it or God doesn't really care. What are some lies that have been rattling around in your ears for far too long that you need to turn around and correct today and say, that's not true and I will not hear it anymore. And then what is the obstacle what is the obstacle in life, the hardness in life that needs to motivate us instead of intimidate us? Man, you know why they went to work on that wall? Because it was broken. Previously, you know why they didn't work on the wall? Is because it was broken. The very same thing can either intimidate us, frighten us, scare us away, or it can set our hearts and say, we will, with the leadership, the direction, the empowering of God, we will overcome this. What's your wall? What's the lie that needs to be corrected? And what's the obstacle that needs to be motivation instead of intimidation? You know, we talked about museums. The thing is, a museum is a collection of works of art. As we think about overcoming the rubble, what I want you to know is that not only is your life a work of art, but chances are your life is a museum, a whole collection of works of art. Your life is a whole collection of different times and moments where God stirred and moved in your life and worked where you can see the brushstroke by brushstroke by brushstroke where God works. And so sometimes the overcoming of the rubble is not just a single piece of art, but it's a whole collection of pieces. And it may be that if you look real tight at one piece, it says, well, well this isn't going anywhere. This isn't beautiful. This isn't it. But stand back. See the whole work of art. See how the collection of God's artwork in your life brushstroke by brushstrokes makes a difference. Let me pray for you.